Um, let's open our Bibles, if you have one there, to Acts chapter 2. I think uh, the wee PowerPoint's going to come up in a second. So, uh, Acts chapter 2. And I want to read um, from Acts 2, verse 42. So, if you have been here the last couple of weeks, you'll know this is following on from what was said before. But Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And then we'll go over to chapter 4. Let's read verse 41 first, just to give it a little bit of context to where verse 42 comes from. So Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We'll go over to chapter 4, and you'll notice it says verse 36 up there. I've been cheeky, I'm going to read a few verses before that, but I think it's, it's uh, worthwhile doing that. So let's look at uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 23. It says, On their release, Peter and John, so Peter and John have been in prison, they've been released. They went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then we'll skip, we'll not read the whole of their prayer. But down to verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats. That's the threats of the chief priests and the elders. Consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy, or there were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. End the reading from God's word there. Now, whenever you're thinking about this theme of being sent and of mission and of our engagement in our mission in our world here in Northern Ireland, you might be tempted to skip over this bit of Acts altogether because this is about the church. And when it comes to thinking about mission, sometimes the church can be a little bit of an embarrassment, or at least we can feel that. We'd rather we didn't have to talk about the church. We feel like we have to make a defense for the church in terms of what it has been. But I don't think that is fair entirely. I think there is a, a, a message or an idea that's out there that is very negative about the church. And of course some of that has a good basis. 
church as an organization, as an institution, if you can even call it an institution, or as a collection of lots of institutions, has not always lived up to what it should be. And many of you will know that, both through personal experience and because you're part of the church. And you've been part of that feeling to live up to the expectation. But at the same time, the church, I think, has done a huge amount of good. And we need to understand and read that and, and not diss the church. Let's see if I'm uh, in control here. Some of the, the signs, you've maybe seen some of these before, but outside uh, church buildings, I think they're all real in the States. And if you're thinking of having to go at Presbyterians or not, there's a few different ones from different denominations coming up. But sometimes it seems like the church is a bit like this, a bit nutty, sweet like fudge, but with a few nuts. Or hypocritical, maybe it talks a good message, but prophecy class cancelled due to unforeseen circumstances, or revival cancelled due to death. Um, sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that one, but it's a, an interesting message to, to give out. Maybe the church has died, it's irrelevant, that's the sense that some people might have out there. Or worse still, don't let worry kill you off, let the church help. <laughs> might feel like that. Or the last one, we love hurting people, or is it maybe we love people who are hurting, as opposed to we love hurting people. And that could be the kind of headline message, the idea that people have of the church. And when we look at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, we're seeing a very different picture. Now of course you might kind of say, well this all sounds a bit idealised, you only need to read on in Acts and realise that it's not always just as, as straightforward as this. Things do go wrong. You'll see that if you get into Acts 5. There are big issues that arise in terms of how they organize themselves. There's a bit of deception and a little bit of hypocrisy that goes on in there. There are big questions down the line that will come up in terms of who is part of the church and what they have to, to do in order to be part of it if they've come from a Gentile background. But as we read Acts 2, it's telling us how this all began. It's telling us what the church in its raw essence looks like. And it starts in chapter 2 verse 42 with a fourfold devotion. That's really what I want to major on. I want to look at the four things that they were devoted to and what those mean in terms of the life of the church and how they're expanded on in these verses. Now that's about what they do. They devoted themselves. But you'll notice as you read through these chapters that there's this kind of seesawing or back and forward between what God does and what they do. And it doesn't begin with what they do. That's why I wanted to read the verse before, because it begins with what God did. God added to their number the people who were cut to the heart when Peter preached, who responded in faith to his message. Yes, they were baptized. That's something the church did. But it was in response to what God had done, which of course was a response to what God had done in pouring out his Holy Spirit at the beginning of chapter 2. So it is God who moves, and in response to that, they respond by these four devotions, which we're going to explore. And then that leads on to what God does, awe and wonders and signs, because if you look at verse 43 of chapter 2, it's the verbs are passive is what you could say. It's not, it's not that they stirred up in themselves a sense of awe. A sense of awe came upon them from God. And it's not that they manufactured the signs and wonders. God did those through the apostles. It's Christ, as Ali said earlier on, 
continues by the Spirit to do what he had been doing when he was here physically on earth. And then they respond again by sharing everything in common. And then God responds again, and it's very clear, verse, the end of verse 47, that the Lord adds to their number those who are being saved. Right? Now, I want to emphasize that because sometimes we think what we need to do is to do the bits that actually are, are what God does. Okay? There are bits in this that only God can do. You cannot make your church grow numerically through new people coming to faith. God is the one who saves people. God's the one who brings people to faith. But you can be the church that God calls you to be. You cannot make signs and wonders happen. If God wants to do that, let him do it. Be available to him. But you can't manufacture it. But you can devote yourself to the things that God has given us, which keep us faithful to him and make us available to him. You can't generate a sense of awe or that awareness of the presence of God, which of course he is always with us, but it's that particular awareness of it. But you can be in the place where you will encounter him and experience him. You might also notice there's a kind of a loop here, isn't it, from God adding people 3,000, so they suddenly boost from 120 to 3,000, 120 or whatever, if that mass is right. And then daily this trickle of people being added as time goes along. So let's look at the fourfold devotion. And Bruce Longenecker, it's one of those great names, you're going to have a great name if you're going to publish a book about the Bible, but he calls it steadfast and single-minded fidelity. Actually, if there is one word in these verses that I think is the most challenging word in our time, in our moment, it is the word devoted. They committed themselves to. It's a steadfast and single-minded fidelity or faithfulness or commitment to the things that we read about in verse 42. The reason I say I think that's one of the most challenging words in our moment is because the culture that we live in doesn't value and doesn't understand commitment. Doesn't understand steadfast fidelity. Doesn't understand it in family life, by and large, in terms of marriage, in terms of even friendship, in terms of all of those commitments. They, there, there's a sense of wanting community, but a lack of a sense of sticking at it whenever it's not easy or you don't get the return from it or you don't get what you had hoped for from it. But what they do is devote themselves with a single-minded, steadfast, loyalty, faithfulness to four things. So what are the four things? Well, verse 42 says, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, I put the, the words slightly differently than they are in the NIV that are read from, but closer, I think, to what the original, what the Greek says. I've asked the question, based on this, what are the ingredients for the church? What do you need to make a church? What you need or to make the church. You need the word. The apostles teaching the gospel, the word of God, you need the word. You need the gospel. You cannot have the church without the gospel of Jesus Christ. But on the flip side, you need the spirit. Really the flip side, you need both integrated together. When I put that beside prayers, 
I say, well, who are they praying to? They're praying to God, and the prayer that we read, they're praying that God will continue to work and move through them. And you see this as it unfolds through Luke and Acts, that God, the Father, sends Jesus, who then sends the Spirit, and who continues his presence with them through the Spirit. So the, the, the church doesn't just need the Word of God, we need the Spirit of God to be living and active in us and through us. But we need both. And we tend to struggle to integrate both. Sometimes we veer to one side or the, or the other, but we need both together. But it's not just about words, and it's not just about the Spirit in some invisible, unseen, intangible sense. An experience of emotion alone, but something that comes down into the physical stuff of real people, because you can't have a church without people, and the fellowship is about people. People who are together in their commitment to the Word and their experience of the Spirit. And it's also about bread. The ordinary stuff of daily life that takes on a new significance when it is shared together in the context of the Word and the Spirit. Now the bread, of course, breaking of bread, not just bread, but wine in terms of communion. You could add water because they baptize people in ordinary water, liquid stuff. But all the other things that they share together are physical things. In other words, the faith is meant to be embodied in, in a physical, tangible, touchable, feelable, smellable reality. The real lives of real people encountering real stuff. So to be the church we need the word, the spirit, people and bread at least to begin with. So why are they devoted to these four things? What do these four things mean and tell us? Well, the apostles' teaching is the first thing. And I've put a word beside each of these things because I think this devotion, it's not just about commitment in the sense of we're sticking at it. It is about that, but it's a commitment that is fueled by love. And in this case, it's a love of learning. So what we're seeing here is not just a community that had great teaching, which is good, but a community that had great learning in the sense that they took in what was being taught and they lived it out in obedience. Yeah? You know, it's one thing to say our church has great teaching, I mean, that's not a bad thing. But it's another thing to say we have great learning and great obedience to what's being taught. Now, rewinding back to what Jesus said to the apostles in Luke 22, what is it that they were teaching about? Or Luke 24. This after the resurrection, Jesus meets with them and he says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. So it's a bit like Matthew 28, Jesus says to them that they should teach people to obey everything that he taught them. You need to remember the things that I taught you when I walked with you and you walked with me. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be and then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So it's also teaching from the word, the written word of God. And especially helping them to see how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. To read the Old Testament as Christians. How Jesus is the center of it. To find Jesus in scripture. And thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. The centrality of Jesus 
of his death and of his resurrection, right at the heart of what the apostles were to teach about. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. In other words, they're going to have a role in teaching what sin is and what repentance is. And they do that, and if you read their writings and the epistles, they, they help the church to understand what sin is and what repentance looks like. And also to remind the church of its mission to go and share this good news. So in a sense, this is the shape of the apostolic teaching. It is teaching the scriptures with the aim of people finding Jesus in the scriptures. It's reminding people of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's teaching them what sin is and what repentance and therefore faith looks like. And it's sending people out on a mission to the world. That's the heart of their teaching. And we need that in the church. We need to be committed to learning and obeying this. That's what the church does. So I could ask you the question, what does that look like for you? How do you do that so that it's not just listening to somebody rabbiting on up here? If you're still listening, if you haven't zoomed out as yet. But that it becomes something that is lived out, enacted, that your life is increasingly shaped by those truths that Jesus was talking about. And then secondly, they're devoted to the fellowship. In other words, they love each other. So they love learning, but they're not just interested in individually learning so that I can go away and know more or even obey more. They do it together. And if you look at the list of things that they share, they share their possessions, they share their time. There's a challenge, isn't it? It's easy, relatively easy to give stuff, but what about time? Because they meet together daily and in the temple and so on. I mean, they're, they're in and out of each other's lives. They're in and out of each other's homes as well. The resource that they have. They share meals together. They seem to do a lot of eating together, but then Jesus did that too. Eating with people, the simple, ordinary stuff of life takes on a new significance. And they share their needs. It might not be so obvious, but if they're meeting each other's needs, they can only do it because they know each other's needs. Yeah? It says in chapter 4 that they had no needy among them. And I think the danger for us as the church is more today that we don't know the needy that we have amongst us because we don't have the trust or the vulnerability to open up about our needs or to admit that we have needs. It's hard to open up about that. So we need a, a culture and a, a context where people can be honest about what's going on materially and also emotionally, relationally. But also maybe because of that, the, the needy don't always feel that there's a home for them. We seem like we're a group of people whose lives are all together. People whose lives are not all together. Don't know how they could fit in. So how do we be that community which is open and honest about need so that those needs can be met? Not just so that we come along and share our needs with no sense of progress, but that those needs can be met. Not just material needs, which is the emphasis in these chapters, but emotional, relational, uh, spiritual needs. And they, they, they share all of this. And again, 
you know, as, as kind of an activist, as somebody who wants to get on and do it, my instinct is to jump in and say, okay, let's all start doing this. And we ought to. I'll talk in a second about whether this is still what we should do uh, now. But we've got to see that they share these things because they share in certain things first. So they share what they have because they share in the fear of God. It says a sense of awe in the NIV in most translations, but the word is actually fear, and it's the fear of God in that biblical sense. That reverence and, and awe for Him, that, that means that His will and His glory is what consumes and what, what matters, and so the fear of others fear of what can go wrong in this life and so on begins to diminish in light of, of him, his sovereignty. So when they pray to him, they say, Sovereign Lord, who created everything. They've got a big vision of who God is. They share in that. And they share in faith in the gospel. It says all the believers in both of those passages that we read. In other words, the, the gospel, what they believe, continues to shape who they are together. They share one heart and soul, I think, because they have a shared concern for the glory of God and a shared belief in the core of the gospel. Might have been lots of other things that they disagreed about, and no doubt there were, but they're united in the core of what they believe. And so they have one heart and soul. I mean, you could just stop there and say, that's enough to pray for in the church. This unity of vision, of purpose. And they shared in the grace of God. Chapter 4, verse 33 says, The grace of God was on all of them. They shared in their, in their appreciation of what God had given them in Christ and what God continued to give them. So that the possessions, of course, became gifts from God. And why would you not use them for others if you realize that they all belong to God anyway? And gratitude, sorry, I'm skipping to the Gratitude to God. So not just experiencing the grace of God, but giving thanks to him and praising him. That came naturally to them. They didn't need to be chivied along in doing it because they were living from a place of gratitude. Now again, this is the ideal. It doesn't mean there was nothing within it. There was nobody who ever turned up and didn't feel happy or glad or thankful or whatever. Of course, that's the reality of life, isn't it? The ups and downs. But this is what marked them as a community. Sharing in these things Great vision of God, faith in the gospel, oneness in heart and soul, God's grace and gratitude to him. And from that, it was natural for them to then share the things that they had and share the needs that they had so that those needs could be met. So once again, it's not that we should major on telling people to do all of this, give more, but we should major, major on our experience of God appreciation of him and from that then we become people who generously and gladly, those are the words that are used give now is that how we should live today now they're not, they're not we need to understand what they do do they don't suddenly sell everything and own everything collectively but the people who do own things gladly sell those as needs arise so it's not that they all suddenly became communist in the sense of you know selling everything co-ownership living in a commune they still live in their family units in their own homes 
but they are willing and, and gladly go and sell whatever they see somebody else who is in need. So should we do that today? It's one of those tricky questions with Acts. Is this just describing what they did, or is it prescribing what we should do? And I think when it comes to these four devotions, it's more than just describing what they happen to be committed to. It's actually telling us these are the core things that make for the health of the church. Because of the way Luke words that they devoted themselves to. But the way they live out that value of the fellowship, in their context, of course, may not be exactly how we do it in our context. Selling off your property may or may not be a good thing to do to meet the needs. There may be better ways to do that. Giving out of the profit from your property or whatever it might be. But the principle of meeting material needs for one another is core to what it means to love each other. And John says that in his first epistle. By this we know love. That he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Had a wee conversation about what's on here. I think it might mean something like words or deeds, not words, in Latin. And the Latin's a bit rusty, so correct me afterwards if I'm wrong. But that's what John's saying here. I know this is not yours, by the way. I know this is the school, but it serves well for this. It's got to put into action, it? It's got to be more than words. Loving one another is not just about turning up and saying, I love you, but it's acting it out, living it out when the real needs arise. Being there for one another, devoted to each other, committed steadfastly to one another, and doing it with our material needs. So there's a radical economics going on here, if you like. And the church. Ought to be like that. Ali, the question Ali didn't get time to ask me, which was great for me, because it was about what do you struggle most with, isn't it, as a Christian? And one of the things I do struggle with most is not necessarily the biggest struggle, because those are probably in here, in the heart, and in the mind. But whenever Christian systems don't seem to follow a kingdom pattern, but they just follow the pattern of the world, and they assume that that pattern is the best way. But that's maybe just because I'm a bit of a radical or a bit postmodern or whatever it is. Systems, but you know, we, we need to say, Is there a better way? Let's have imagination. Let's say, What does God's kingdom look like? What does God's rule look like? What does it look like to follow the Lordship of Christ? And how would we live that out and how we use our money and how we have our possessions? Is there a better way than the assumption that the world's way is the best? Now, how you work that out where you are, you're going to need to think that out because I don't. But they're also devoted to the breaking of bread because they love Jesus. It's not just that they love learning and that they love one another. They love the Lord. And the breaking of bread is the central thing that they do because, of course, Jesus had taught them back in Luke 22. And when they break bread, it doesn't just mean communion because they're also eating meals together, breaking bread as they eat together. But... At the heart of that is the meal that Jesus told them to have. It's a really interesting thing that in many ways for the early church, communion, the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, was the central act. It was the central part of their worship. Over the ages we've kind of struggled with that. Other things have, have displaced it a bit, especially amongst Protestants, if I can say that. 
So the word, open, and I think you don't normally have this here. Paul was written, it's not it's off center, so I'm off center, so you guys are getting neglected over there, I'm sorry. But if I move to the center, I mean, that's not, but in the, in the classical thing, the pulpit in the center, right? As opposed to the communion table, if you're thinking about church architecture. But it's not the pulpit that's at the center now, it's the music stand, sorry, it's no criticism, Richard. But that's the big challenge for us now, that, that kind of sung praise takes the place. But actually the centrality of communion and an appreciation of it is something more. Praise, of course, has its place. It's natural for Christians to do it. It would be weird if we didn't. Teaching has its place. It's one of the things they were devoted to. But actually the centrality of communion, because what happens when we take communion is that we're leveled together. It's not that, you know, I mean, um, stop us. I was going to say it's not that some of us are better at eating than others, but I've got the proof that some of us eat more than others. Um, but, you know, we, we all need to eat. We all need food from outside ourselves to sustain us. And taking communion is about depending on something that is outside yourself for your sustenance. Praising God is about giving out from yourself to Him. Do you see what I mean? Preaching is about listening to somebody else who may or may not be faithful to Him. But when you take communion, you're saying, I am utterly dependent on God and on Christ. And we are leveled together because we all eat. Some of us can sing better than others. Some can play instruments. Some can preach. Not everybody. But we all eat. We're united. It's a, it's a great sign of unity. It's a great sign of dependence. And it's a great enactment, acting out the gospel physically. And being brought back to the beginning and back to Jesus. So that's a kind of a plea for making communion. So it doesn't, I'm not talking about how often you do it or how you do it. I'm just saying it needs to be right at the center. It's something that matters to them. Because Jesus mattered to them. And then fourthly, I don't know if I have control this the prayers. And I've called that loving others. Why do I say that? Because the prayer that I, that I read, which is the first prayer that you read of the church after Acts 2, and they're in a context where they're under threat. And they say, Lord, remember their threats. Look on their threats. But not look on their threats and preserve us. Look on their threats and give us an easy life. Look on their threats and let us have privilege and influence and control over society. And let society do it our way. But they say, Lord, look on their threats and give your servants boldness to speak. And would you do what only you can do and heal and do signs and wonders through the apostles? And look at the word, look at how they describe themselves. When they talk about the holy servant Jesus, and they talk about themselves as God's servants. This is the servant church. It's a church that has a mission to the world, but not a mission of going out and telling the world what to do and dictating, or a mission of going out and thinking that it is the answer to the world's needs. Because the church isn't the answer. Jesus is. And the church shouldn't be speaking about itself, but about him. So we want to make his name great. We want to make his name known. We want to point to the only pure, faithful servant of God, Jesus. But we do that as God's holy people. We are set apart to be his servants, to live for him, to speak for him, to point.
point to him to live out the reality of his kingdom. So it's not that we think we will solve or be the answer to the world's needs, but we will bear testimony to the one who is. And we will live out the consequences of what he's doing in our lives. And we'll let people see that in humility, not in arrogance, but in humility to show what life looks like when God is born by his spirit. But if you look at their qualities, they're united in belief and vision. And that particularly relates to breaking bread. That's what keeps them united. Because they keep coming back to the core and back to the person of Jesus as they break bread together. And they're set apart to serve God's purposes and their prayers show that. They keep on praying, Lord, use us as your servants. We belong to you. And whatever the world is saying to us, we want to be bold and speak for you do it as servants. And they're whole in membership and gifting. The, the fellowship is about all the believers. Just read over those verses again and see how many times it says all of them and the whole church. Not just some of them, but all of them. And they're constantly thinking about who isn't with them as well because they are for the whole world. And they're linked with Jesus through the apostles. They keep on teaching the message that Jesus gave to the apostles. Those words later on in the life of the church got embedded in creed, those concepts. And the creeds of the church, which in a church like this, we don't recite them or whatever, but I'm sure we believe them, we accept them, something that unites the church. We are one, we are holy, we are Catholic in the sense of wholeness. Wholeness is what Catholicity means, the whole Catholic. And we are apostolic because we are linked with Jesus through the apostles that he appointed. And you can look at the question in this passage of what the apostles do and what the ordinary believers do. And recognize that there are some who are gifted in particular ways in the mission of the church. But all of us have a part to play. Because the world needs to see the reality of God's kingdom lived out in a community of people who are a kingdom it's one thing to proclaim the gospel, but to back that up with a, a community of people who live in it. As you look at that, you'll see there are echoes of the Old Testament as well. The no needy amongst them echoes back to Deuteronomy 15. and says in the law, there need be nobody who's needy amongst you. There need to be no poor amongst you because you can all provide for each other. And what you're seeing here is the kind of community that God had intended Israel to be now being enacted. Not perfectly, imperfectly, works and all, as Acts goes on and tells you that the works choosing them all. And we've got plenty of them ourselves in this fellowship and in the one that I'm part of. But we are God's kingdom people. We need to devote ourselves to the things that He has given us the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship with one another, and prayer. Let me just pray for you as I. God, I want to thank you for this fellowship of your people here. It's a real joy for me to be here with them and to be part of the big family, the big fellowship that we are all part of, your church. Father, we realize that we fall short very often of what we ought to be. But help us, Father, in response to what you have done in us and in the empowerment of your spirit, not thinking that we can do it ourselves or even thinking that the idea of doing something on our own makes sense whenever everything that we have and are is a gift from you. 
Father, help us to acknowledge as a response to your grace to us from hearts of gratitude to be devoted to your word, to be devoted to one another, to be devoted to Jesus as we break bread, and to be devoted to prayer so that we are constantly seeking your guidance, not the kind of prayer that asks you to bless what we have planned, but the kind of prayer that seeks your 